over the years, I've, uh, I, I hate to even think how many uh, wedding ceremonies I've conducted. I, it's, it's just dozens, dozens and dozens of them. There's a, let's see, I see one, one that I conducted. How many people here I conducted a wedding ceremony for? Well, just, just one here today. That's amazing. There's a lot more than that. <laughs> but uh, uh, each, one is, each one has been personalized in some way. You know, they're, they're, they are personalized in some ways because a lot of times, you know, particularly if in most cases I, I know the couple and know, the, know them well and, and so, you know, say something about, uh, something about that and something about the background. I don't often do a, do a ceremony for people I, I don't know well. So they're, they're, uh, they're personalized in some way. But, but in the main, the, all the, the weddings I've conducted have followed a very traditional uh, kind of format. And, and that's, that's really, that's really it's, it's my doing. You know, I, I don't say, well, what kind of a service would you like? You know, what kind of vows would you like to do? I, you know, I, I, I see real value when the couple and the congregation hearing the same words, exchanging the same vows that their parents did and their grandparents did and their great-grandparents before that. I, I, I just love the ceremony that, that unashamedly affirms our ties to previous generations. I, I, I love how hearing that traditional language that you've heard, you know, you've heard it in, in, you know, just in weddings you've gone to and in movies and tel- television, things like that, how, how it's, it's just the language. It, it subtly teaches and emphasizes that, that, uh, that you are, you know, this couple is entering into a, an ancient covenant instituted by God it was here before they got here and if the Lord tarries it's going to be here after they're gone and and uh, and I love that there's value in that and I and I also uh, prefer the the traditional wedding ceremony and because the traditional language of it if it's actually heard and if it's actually taken to heart it really offers a, a much broader and biblically accurate understanding of what marriage is all about compared to more contemporary presentations you know that that I've attended and you have you have too which tend to focus really exclusively on the couple uh, it, it's it's the focus on the couple it's their love and their vows and their day and and the contemporary presentations that kind of uh, de-emphasize if they don't squeeze out altogether uh, both God and the marriage's support system, the family, the friends, the church, which actually, in the traditional language, get first mention. I, I don't know if you've ever noticed it, but, they, but actually, in a, what, what are you, how does it start? You know, we're gathered here in the presence of God and this assembly or this company of loved ones and friends, Right? They get first mentioned before the couple. The couple hasn't been mentioned yet. <laughs> it begins with God. It begins with the, uh, the, the congregation before the bride and groom. And, and that's why, that reason right there, is why weeks before the wedding day, when I'm going over the ceremony with the couple, with the engaged couple, I also advocate for that little part of the ceremony, the traditional ceremony, 
that goes something like this. If anyone in this assembly knows any just cause why this marriage should not be performed, <laughs> uh, let him speak now or forever hold his peace. I don't absolutely insist on it. And the reason I don't is because every once in a while, either the bride-to-be or the groom-to-be, they just know that if that, they're, you know, crazy Uncle Cletus, or something, no, anybody, no, anybody have a Cletus? In there? Okay, no Cletus. All right, crazy Uncle Cletus is going to, he just doesn't take anything seriously, and he's going to just delight in messing something up, and just he's going to, if he gets that shot, He's going to blurt something outrageous, you know, he's going to blurt out something outrageous and ruin the whole thing. And they're going to be, you know, if I were to do that, say that, they'd just be on the bride and the groom. They're going to be on pins and needles until it, the moment passes. You know, it's just going to be and, and they're just going to go nuts. And and so if that when that's the case, I, I don't insist on using that. You know what I do? I, I let it go and forever hold my peace. You know, I let it go. <laughs> But if there's, but other than that, I like using it because it speaks to the role of others in supporting that marriage. Uh, this covenant of marriage, of course, it's mainly between uh, the uh, the bride and the groom, the, these two people. But it is, you know. This assembly of loved ones and friends, they have a part in it too. Uh, the parents and in-laws, just for example, have responsibilities before God regarding that marriage they've come there to consecrate. Um, the minister will tell the couple, here's something traditional too in the service, uh, you, from this day forward, you are entering uh, into a, you know, something like this, a new relationship with one another. You've heard that from this day forward. Guess what? They're not the only ones entering on an, into a new relationship to someone else who's there. Just as the new uh, wife has biblical obligations to her husband that she did not have uh, you know, before when this was just her boyfriend, or her fiance, and the, you know the new husband has responsibilities before God to his new wife that he didn't have when she was just his fiance or his girlfriend. The parents have obligations to a you know, the the marriage and a new son-in-law, a new daughter-in-law that they did not have before they got there when this is just their daughter's boyfriend. Or their daughter's girlfriend, uh, daughter's boyfriend. Boy, I got to be careful these days, don't I? <laughs> Extended family members have an obligation before God, responsibilities before God related to the marriage as well. So do friends who friends. So does the church. And th this is why, I don't want to take many, very many minutes, this is, this is a personal uh, privilege and just a rant on my part, but this is why I don't, I don't care for the idea of destination weddings. I, I don't care for it for that reason. You know, people think we're going we're gonna to get married at the, you know, the, 
and sunsetted on a beach in Hawaii. And just imagine, you know, just imagine how great it's going to be. And the, you know, the photograph, the wedding photographs are going to be fantastic, you know, until you get them back and been photobombed by some big-bellied guy in a Speedo, you know. <laughs> right? But that's not, why I don't, that's not why I don't care for the idea. I, I, I don't care for the idea of the destination wedding because of how severely it restricts participation in the wedding by family, by friends, by the community, by the church. And really, that's the intent of it. As far as I can tell, uh, people are quite open about it. They say, we're going to do an end around around all that fuss about who gets invited and the expense of the reception and all of that. And we're going to get married where we plan the honeymoon. And just, it's a brilliant idea. It's a brilliant plan if that's what you're trying to do. Uh, you know, you don't get an invitation in the mail. You get an, in, you get an announcement, right? And has an address of where to send the check, you know, because, you, know, you know, that's uh, airline tickets to Hawaii, not cheap. And I can see why people do it if they don't recognize that marriage as anything other than a private agreement or contract between two people, just the two of them, no one else. And if in their minds marriage has absolutely nothing to do with their extended families, certainly nothing to do with the church, then why should all these people be included? Uh, why not just spare themselves all the drama and all the fuss and all the expense involving a bunch of people some of whom we don't even like you know we have to invite them because it's your mom's friend or your dad's boss you know $18 a head for a nuked chicken breast on rice pilaf and and a little broccoli you know are you kidding isn't it supposed to be our day isn't it supposed to be our wedding and so I'm not altogether unsympathetic, which, which is why I agree with, uh, with John Piper that Christians should encourage a church culture that honors uh, relatively simple and inexpensive Christ-honoring weddings. Uh, that's right on point. We have, over the years, you know, we've, we've forfeited a lot of ground uh, to commercial interests in the wedding business and uh, turn something over to them and they don't you know that what's a commercial interest care about they don't care about what a marriage is what it's supposed to be and therefore that what a wedding is supposed to be there of course they want to maximize expenses <laughs> maximize it so some couples get married thinking that their marriage has absolutely nothing to do with their parents nothing to do with parents and in-laws they'll probably not have that opinion in, in a year but, the, but the, it has absolutely nothing to do with them. Uh, for some couples, it has ad nothing to do with God. And where the role of God and family and community and church are minimized, the wedding becomes nothing more than a... Where's the have left to go? It's nothing more than a celebration of the couple 
And I don't know if you've noticed. I mean, I've, I'm overthinking these things, I know. But uh, it usually says so right on the invitation or the announcement that you get. You're not invited to be a witness to anything or to bless anything. You're, you're there to celebrate them. <laughs> but that is, that's an impoverished, incomplete view. And while the bride and the groom are absolutely, they're the two absolutely necessary participants, right? <laughs> the show can't go on without, without both of them. But the truth of it is that everybody who's there, and people who aren't there, but everybody who's there leaves the ceremony with some new responsibilities before God that they didn't have when they got there. You catch it right there at the end where the officiant says, what God has joined together, let no man put asunder. But you also get it when the minister says, if anyone in this assembly knows any just cause why these two should not be united in holy matrimony, let him speak now or forever hold his peace. And the message is the same. Take note, wedding attender, <laughs> friend, family, mom, dad, church. You have responsibilities before God related to this sacred union that's being consecrated here today. Something holy is coming into being, and it's something you need to be careful with, something you should treat as holy because it is. You know, what God has joined together, let no man put asunder. Translation, you undermine this marriage, you attack the work of God. Speak now, forever hold your peace. Translation, you think this is a bad idea, you think this union is ill-advised, the shelf life for that kind of talk expires today. <laughs> because from this day forward, you don't say things that undermine undermine the uh, confidence of the couple in the marriage or you don't say things that demean the husband in the wife's eyes or denigrate the wife in the husband's eyes is be careful uh, to weigh the impact of the things that you say before you say them because marriage is holy something set apart to God Something sacred is to be treated with care, is not to be treated lightly as something of little consequence. And then, for all of this proper, I think, needful, realistic, I think, emphasis on the role of parents and family and friends and community and church, something in all the traditional, it's not the ceremony itself, but the, the day really, Something remarkable happens, uh, something that almost seems like a contradiction to the role of family and community and church. What happened? The couple goes off by themselves. <laughs> the couple leaves, and no one else is invited. You're not even allowed to go. You know, you're, they, they, it's, to the, it's by themselves, and the two become one flesh together. And if, if you think, of course, it's, it's uh, the Bible itself relates its one flesh 
phenomenon to sexual union, but if you think that the one flesh relationship is only or merely a reference to sexual union, you, you, you must not be married because <laughs> you don't know the half of it. That, that couple running off hand in hand under the, the handfuls of thrown rice is embarking on a personal um, experience that neither of them understand, <laughs> uh, but they both will experience it. And before they're done, in, before they're done in this one flesh phenomenon, they're going to be finishing each other's sentences. <laughs> They're going to know what the other is thinking at any time in any conversation. They're going to know what the other person is going to say before they say it, right? Well, people have been married a long time. They can communicate volumes with just a glance, right? Just a look. It would take an hour to say what's, in, what's embodied in that look, but they, you know, the, 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 that communication with just a look. You know, if they're blessed to grow old together, they, they might even start to look like each other. Have you ever seen that? You ever noticed that? I mean, I have. You Surely you've seen it. These people have been married. They, they look alike. And this one flesh phenomenon in marriage, is, it's a mysterious thing. And it works itself out differently in different marriages marriages it's like a dance between two people who have who have learned and still learning each other's steps and no two dances are exactly alike they're not alike and why is that because it's a relationship between two people and people are not like each other. The Apostle Paul is extolling the spiritual advantages of singleness. And he says, the married man is anxious about worldly things. He specifically, I think we could put in there, how to please his wife. And the married woman is anxious about worldly things, specifically how to please her husband. In other words, married people become the subjects, uh, students of one subject, and what's that? The person they're married to. What pleases you know, a man? A man thinks about and is anxious about how to please his wife, the wife how to please her husband. You know what pleases my wife, men? Why not please yours? <laughs> um, Ladies, what pleases your husband might not work in some you know, might not work in a, in someone else's marriage, your girlfriend's marriage. Uh, I, I can tell you. So you know what's what's that mean? Understand your understand your wife. Peter says, likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. Live with your wives in an understanding way. I don't think Paul. I don't think Peter is saying there, men. Understand women generally. I don't think so. But it's rather men live with your wife, your wife in an understanding way. 
Understand her and let that understanding be reflected in how you, how you live together. It's not understand them, all of them. You know, you understand yours, I'll try to understand mine. <laughs> yeah, because they're not going to be the same. I, I, I can tell you and, you, and you know this, that it's the responsibility of every husband to love his wife sacrificially as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And it's the responsibility of every wife before God to see to it that she respects her husband. Right? We can, tell, we can say that. We can say that, of course. But I can't tell you what, exactly what that's going to look like in every single marriage. Sarah, I hate to bring this up, but Sarah called Abraham Lord. First Peter 3. You know, so how do you do it? And what, do you, what do we take from that? Uh, Sarah's manner of addressing her husband demonstrated her submissiveness to his headship. So shall we make a rule that every wife should address her husband as Lord? Or, you know, to take the, you know, the, 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 the tinge of idolatry out of it. You know, because his Lord is not like Lord Jesus. But to take the, 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 you know, the sense of idolatry out of it, how, should we make a rule that every wife address her husband as Sir? Because that, you know, that would be, you know, the, really the equivalent there. I, I'm guessing that such a rule wouldn't work very well in your marriage. Because you aren't Abraham and Sarah. You aren't Abraham and Sarah. We would, rather than make a rule, you know, rather than kind of universalize that example that's given, you know, by, by Peter about, uh, about Sarah, uh, wouldn't we be on firmer ground to kind of principalize Sarah's example, because that's what it is, and, and say that if a husband loves his wife as in a Christ-like way, and if a wife respects her husband, her husband's headship in the marriage, these things will show in their ordinary daily interactions with each other, including the way they address one another. For example, when you say that, the specifics are for you to work out. So I heard Alistair Begg this say this in a different context, but I'll say it's his phrase, he used it, but it works here for me too. So work out your marriage with fear and trembling, for it is a holy thing. It's a divinely intended picture of the relationship between Christ and the church, and you have been working it out ever since they threw the rice on you as you were leaving the church the reception it isn't for the church to work out it isn't for your friends to work out or your extended family or your parents it's the it's the whole it's it's for you and your spouse 
and it's the and it's the holy of holies of your marriage where it's no nobody else goes in nobody else goes in there the holy of holies what's a, what's holy of holies someone might, might not know the holy of holies that inner part of the temple where god manifested his presence and nobody went in there except the high priest once a year it's the it's where god manifests his presence and it's not to be treated lightly it's the there are things that belong in that holy of holies of your marriage that that are that are for you and your and your spouse and everyone else will regard that as holy too if they know what they're doing and they know that holy things shouldn't be treated lightly. So, so, what in the world does all of that have to do with how to love with differences of conviction and convention in the church, which allegedly the, t- the sermon title is supposed to be, it says so in the bulletin. What in the world does this have to, you know, does all of that th- stuff about marriage and wedding have to do with that? Well, marriage... As Ephesians tells us, is as I said, a divinely intended picture of the relationship between Christ, uh, relationship between Christ and the church. Paul says this mystery, Ephesians 5:32, this mystery is profound, and I am saying that it, by which he means marriage, refers to Christ and the church. So the comparison between marriage and the relationship between the Savior and the saved is a biblical one. I didn't think it up. I didn't dream it up. It's there. And we can learn things about our salvation, our walk with Christ, by observing marriage. Now, let me just suggest uh, three things. I think I've got three things here that uh, set up this uh, teaching about what to do with differences of practice and conviction in the church. Here's one. Just as marriage creates obligations before God in the, not just with the couple, but in the broader family, in the community, in the church. In the same way, your salvation in Christ obligates other believers regarding you and your salvation. We have all, because you are in, in relationship with Christ, I have certain obligations to you. And so do what your, your fellow believers do. I'm to love you. I'm to love you. And if I don't, I sin against God. I'm to pray for you. I'm to value and depend on your giftedness in the Holy Spirit. I'm, I, I'm also to encourage you in your faith with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Ephesians 5.18 what we did when we sing together, when we worship together, part of what we're doing is encouraging each other in, in our faith. It's that we tend to think of it in just in vertical terms, right? I'm worshiping the Lord, and, and we are. We should be. But we're also fulfilling an obligation to each other. I, I, I'm obligated to think through and strategize how I might motivate you to love and good deeds. That's Hebrews 10.24. It's a command. We're supposed to do that. I'm instructed by God to share your, in your griefs and your joys, to weep with you when you weep, to rejoice with you when you rejoice. 
to share your burdens. And as, as much as someone might want to completely privatize the Christian life so that it has nothing to do with anyone except the person and Jesus, just me and Jesus, it just doesn't work that way. That's not how it, that's not how it should be. I, I wish someone would go through the New Testament and quantify what percentage. I, I guess I should do it, but <laughs> I wish somebody would go through the New Testament and quantify what percentage of New Testament commands simply cannot be obeyed apart from involvement and engagement with other believers in the context of a worshiping, serving, functioning church. Because I'm guessing it's a high percentage, like maybe half. Uh, think of it. Think of it. The, you know, just think New Testament. All the one another's. All the one another's. How do you obey a one another verse with, alone? It can't be done. You know, uh, love one another, admonish one another, forbear with one another, forgive one another, outdo one another in showing honor. That's Romans 12. Greet one another warmly in a culturally appropriate way. You, you like what? See what I did there with um, greet one another with a holy kiss. <laughs> uh, obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. That's Hebrews 13. How do you obey that if you've managed to live your Christian life in such a way that you never you've never acquired any spiritual leaders as far as they know? And and on and on and on. Salvation is in part a family affair and it's the family of God that we're talking about. Second, just as the core of marriage is that one flesh relationship between a man and a woman, in the same way, at the core of our salvation is a personal one-on-one, -on -one, no one else included, <laughs> relationship between an individual believer and Jesus Christ. As many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even, or that is, to those who believe in his name. It's up to each person to believe in Christ, to receive Christ. And personally trusting Christ brings us into a personal and individual relationship with him Philippians 3 8 Paul says indeed I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord and in the context you probably know it he's talking about forsaking all of his prior trust and his impressive religious credentials right he had religious credentials like crazy and he says, I count them all as rubbish compared to the surpassing uh, value, the, the privilege 
of actually knowing Christ as a person. You know, and this is why we say it. it's, it's cliche, but it's absolutely true. Christianity, properly understood, is not a religion about Christ. It is a relationship with Christ. We talk to him in prayer. We seek to please him in the way that we live. We confess our sins to him when we, and we ask his forgiveness when we, when we do that which displeases him. It's a relationship. It's a relationship. And if it's not, if it isn't a personal relationship, and, and if, if, if your Christianity only manifests itself in going to church, uh, only in engaging in religious group activities, and it doesn't, it doesn't manifest itself in your life, in any other way. It doesn't manifest itself between Sundays. If that would be the case with someone, you'd be in real spiritual danger of being among those to whom Jesus, the Bible says Jesus will say at the judgment, depart from me, I never knew you. So, you know, is there a place for the family and for the church? Yeah, of course there is. You know, of course there is. It's like the wedding ceremony. But listen, leave <laughs> with the Savior and get to know your Savior <laughs> in the privacy, in the solitude of your prayer closet, you know, to use the King James language. You're just, let's just say, your living room when no one else is around. You, the Lord, your Bible. <laughs> or your car. Pour out your soul. When no one else is around, talk to Him. Worship Him. It doesn't all happen at church. But that's second. Third, well, just like marriage, just like marriage, because salvation is an actual relationship between two uh, persons, you and the Lord, the working out of the specifics of that relationship will not be the same in each and every case. It's not going to, especially as you, as you grow and mature, the, 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 sh the shape, the size, the texture, the, everything that you do in, in pursuing this relationship with Christ, it's not going to look like every, someone else's spiritual life. It's going to have some uniquenesses to itself. And now we're finally getting to those inevitable differences of con conviction and convention, is what I've called it in the sermon title, in the church. Now we get, we're getting to it, but I wanted to take this, I wanted to emphasize, you know, that this uh, something else first before we dove in. But it's going to be, have different size and shape. One believer, and just give you some examples. One believer believes he has liberty in Christ to have a beer with his pizza. 
he gives he gives thanks and you know kind of take the new testament phraseology he gives thanks and says bottoms up another believer could never do that without feeling like he had sinned against god how, how do you how do how do you handle those differences when you're you go to the same church you worship together you know you you uh, live in the life together what one christian man feels disrespectful before god if he comes to worship without wearing a coat and a tie what what a throwback he is by the way <laughs> he is like born in the wrong century But that thought never crossed the mind of the guy sitting behind them in the next pew behind them. They never, never entered his mind. I was thinking about, I was thinking about what would go, what would be, what would fit in this questionable, debatable kind of topics today. And I, I thought this morning, just this morning, I thought of uh, tattoos. I, and I've got one of my nurses, one of my, um, you know, chemo nurses. She's got a big tattoo on her arm. Christian woman, very outspoken Christian woman. You know what it says? Jesus. Big letters. Jesus. <laughs> well, you know what? Some are going to see their way, some Christians are going to see their way clear to do something like that. Others are going to say, no, no, no. A few generations ago, it was a matter of great controversy in the church, uh, in, in the church, capital C church. Uh, whether it was proper for um, Christians to play card games, not not just not just Texas Hold'em, any card game. Any card game had a deck of fifty-two. You know, there's, you know, it was a matter of controversy. Some couldn't go there. Uh, attending dances, you can read. You know, you can read the early twentieth century. The great controversy in the church is that proper for a Christian to attend public dances. In, in the New Testament, two issues seem to have uh, risen, one more than another, uh, to the level of church controversy. And one had to do, the main one had to do with meat sacrificed to idols. Uh, the other, to a lesser degree, I think, it had to do with uh, believers in Christ continuing to observe Jewish holy days probably the the sabbath but maybe other holidays as well and and the, the question well to say everyone agreed that actually engaging in pagan idol worship or forsaking christian faith and returning to judaistic practices would be beyond the pale but what about buying meat from the butcher shop that was next door to the temple and they got their meat from the temple. What about that? Does that constitute involvement in idol worship? Well, you know what? For some it did and for some it didn't. How do you live with that? How do you, how do you, uh, what's our responsibilities to each other? Did observing Jewish holidays and engaging in traditional celebrations, did that constitute a forsaking of Christian faith? Well, for some it did and for some it didn't. And you know why these differences are inevitable in the church? You know why they're, ju they're just inevitable? And, and the answer is really quite wonderful, I think. 
It's because at the core of Christian faith and practice is a relationship. Just like at the core of marriage, there is a relationship that doesn't have anything to do with the church or family or anything. If it were just a religion, you know, relationships involve people and people are different. If it's just a religion, not a relationship, we could come up with a whole bunch of rules to cover all of that stuff. Like the Pharisees tried to do. But, but Christian faith isn't about being in compliance with a bunch of rules. It's about being in a living and active relationship with a person. His name is Jesus. And wanting to please Him. And loving Him, but wanting to love Him better. And wanting to love Him more. And, and let's face it, you know, we can, we can make this argument. It'd be good to do sometime, and, and we'll have to if we teach the Bible. But the greater, listen, the greater the love the fewer rules are needed. And just like marriages work out differently in the details because uh, people are different, our walk with Christ works out differently too. Do you spend your time, do you spend private time with the Lord in the mornings or in the evenings? In the mornings before you go to work or before in the evenings before you, you go to sleep? What, what posture do you take when you pray? Do you pray? When, when do you pray? Uh, how do you feed yourself on the Word of God? How do you do it? How do you do it really? Um, these, are things to, these are things to be worked out between you and the Lord over time. And they, they, these are the kinds of things in your Holy of Holies. <laughs> in your relationship with God, between you and the Lord alone. So how do Christians who have in good faith come to different, uh, they've come to different convictions, practices, how do they deal with the differences? All I wanted to impress on you today is that by far the most important consideration is to respect the holy of holies of our fellow believers walk with Christ. That's the most important thing. You know, the, the Bible has a lot to say about how to think through these issues and, and how to be fully convinced in your own mind. You know, the, the, the Romans 14, how to be fully convinced in your own mind. Uh, and how you should live before the Lord. I, I, I think the teaching, the biblical teaching is succinct and it's comprehensive. There is no reason to why anybody should vacillate back and forth the way many Christians do on these things. There's no reason for it. The teaching is there. It's 14th chapter, mainly 14th chapter of Romans, 8th chapter of 1 Corinthians. All the answers are there. But today, all I wanted you to do is see and feel the weight of the overruling aim when you, when you enter into the discussion. In Romans 14, it's reflected in verse 19. So then, let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. I want in in this, in talking about these things. I want you to be built up in your faith, even when it manifests itself differently than than mine, in the details. Even if I think you're wrong <laughs> about the tattoo, or the drinking, or the tie, 
or whatever. In, in 1 Corinthians 8, the overall aim is it's set forth in the form of a warning. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. So when we, when we tackle these issues, it isn't about being right. It certainly isn't about your conscience being someone else's guide. It isn't about someone else's conscience being your guide. It isn't about making others conform to your way of doing things. It's about protecting and nurturing that holy of holies of a fellow believer's personal walk with the Lord, even and even especially when their walk has taken a different shape than yours. It's about loving each other when they live the life differently in this tale or this detail or that. You know, the sermon title is not a typo there. How to love with differences. You think, well, how to live with differences. No, I meant how to love. And we're to treat one another's personal walk before the Lord. And here's the point. With the same care that we treat someone's marriage. Which is to say, of course, with respect, right? With even reverence. With appropriate fear about saying or doing anything that would undermine it, lest we be found opposing the work of God. Next Sunday we'll dive in, Romans 14, 1 Corinthians 8. It's something that ought to be taught every few years. It's been more than a few years since we've taught it. And so some of you are going to learn a lot and some of you are going to see things that you haven't seen before. But remember what we're after. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up fellow believers. We want to, we want to look at, approach it about how, can I, how do I build up other believers? who are living the life differently than I am, in, it, in some detail. Everybody wins where the goal is for everyone to love and serve the Lord with a clear conscience. How, how, can, I, how can we get there? And what God is doing in the lives of my fellow believer, let no man put asunder. <laughs> Let's pray. Uh, Lord Jesus, we do pray. We pray for every walk with you that is represented here in this sanctuary this morning. Give each one who believes greater faith. Give each follower of Jesus a greater devotion to him. Uh, give any who have not yet believed faith to believe and be saved. And let them take the first step in a lifelong walk with you. And give every one of us grace and boldness to take the next step in, in what we hope and pray is an ever-deepening walk with you. And Lord, if any of us need to return to a level of devotion we once had, grant us grace to confess, to repent, to press on for the upward call of God in Christ Jesus, and increase the love between the brethren so that it more closely resembles, reflects the love with which Christ loved all of us and gave himself up for us to our mutual upbuilding 
and for your eternal glory. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.